Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at myselfland.com. We're going to start with the story of Elijah. Now, Elijah, I love. I love the character of Elijah, and there's a, a number of reasons for this. One of the things is I relate to him emotionally. Um, I really do. And uh, uh, I need you to click on the screen there. I relate to Elijah emotionally. <laughs> ah, that's working now. Perfect. All right. Um, Elijah came onto the scene very suddenly. Uh, in the Bible. We don't know much about his background except that he was a Tishbite, so he was from Tish. He was part of the Gilead settlers in Israel in the northern kingdom. This was taking place, the story of Elijah takes place during the reign of King Ahab. And King Ahab had the distinction of being the most wicked king up until that point in Israel. So he's the seventh king of the divided kingdom. And uh, he, he actually was given a run for his money by Manasseh eventually. But he was up until that point the most wicked king. And one of the reasons that he was probably so wicked is he had married a very wicked person. Her name was Jezebel, Queen Jezebel. And uh, she was a Tyrian or from the uh, city of Tyre the land of Tyre. Um, and if you've ever read anything about Tyre, you know that they are prophesied about all over the place. In fact, in Isaiah, where uh, the king of Tyre is prophesied about, he's, that's actually, he's actually uh, a type uh, for, um, for Satan himself. So we learn about Satan by studying the king of Tyre. It's a horrible place. And they were known for their Baal worship. They worshiped the god Baal and Asherah. And just so you know, Asherah was actually Baal's mother in mythology. Uh, she was married to Baal's father. His name was El, E-L. And, uh, but Baal overthrew his father, and so then he was worshipped as the primary god. And it, he was a very, it was a very violent and uh, sordid um, religion. Well, Elijah enters into this scene. And the first thing he does that we read about in the Bible is that he goes to Ahab and declares that because of the wickedness of the land, there's going to be a drought, and it's going to last until he says so. God instructs him to run into the, into the wilderness to hide then, and he does that. And while he's in the wilderness, he's fed by ravens. The Lord uh, provides food for him through ravens, all right? And, uh, man, I think I'm going to need you guys to take over there. All right, so you have my notes? Excellent. Okay. He runs into the, into the Wadi Cherith by the Jordan, where God has instructed the ravens to feed him. And then he does a bunch of miracles. And for three years, he's kind of out in hiding, and then he returns. And when he returns, he's coming back on a, on a, on a mission from God to take on the, the priests and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And so he goes, and he, and he declares a, con, a contest, and the contest looks something like this. You guys build an altar, I'll build an altar on Mount Carmel, and I'm going to worship God or Yahweh, and you worship Baal and Asherah, and we're going to see whose God throws down fire from heaven. It was quite an incredible thing. And the priests and prophets of Baal and Asherah, they went on for hours and hours. The Bible says that they chanted and danced and cut themselves, as was their custom. It was a, a cult, and so they cut themselves, and there was all sorts of blood all over their clothes. It would have been a very gory scene. And nothing happened. And this went on for hours. And then Elijah comes up with these taunts, and they're wonderful. 
And he's sitting back. I can imagine him leaning on a stone going, where's Baal? Where is he? And, and Baal was considered the god of thunder and lightning. So he, you know, he should have the power to start a fire from heaven. He says, where is he? Perhaps he's on a trip. And he has, he's not taking your emails or messages. Perhaps he is tired and asleep. And then the best of all, perhaps he's relieving himself and is unavailable at the moment. <laughs> he really says that in the Bible. And that's one of the reasons I love Elijah. <laughs> but nothing works. And so eventually, um, Elijah puts a stop to it. And he says, it's now time to build a proper altar, and he takes 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and he makes an altar. He arranges the wood and the bowl on top, and then he pours gallons and gallons of water because he doesn't want anybody to think that there's some sort of trickery or sorcery going on here. He's going to make sure that this is a right and good miracle. And the water runs down over the altar and into the trench that he's dug around the altar, and then he cries out in a loud voice, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people may know that you, Yahweh, are God and that, they've, and that you have turned their hearts back. And fire fell from heaven. Amen. Amazing. Can you just imagine being there? I don't know what it would have been like, but I, oh, maybe, you know, does the fire start very, very far off? A pinprick, you know, like when you can see a comet, naked eye can see it, it comes closer, closer, closer. Maybe it took a long time, I don't know. Maybe it was just there, I don't know. But what happened afterwards is that Elijah went on war path against the prophets and the priests of Baal and Asherah. 850 of them were put to the sword. The nation of Israel turned their hearts back. And then Elijah went on to the top of a mountain and he took his servant with him and he instructed him. He says, the, I think that, well, actually, uh, he says, go out and look and tell me what you see. And the, and the servant would come back and, and he said, I see nothing yet. So Elijah would bow down and he would pray, Lord, please end the drought. And then he'd send his servant back. And seven times they did this. He prayed, the servant went. And on the seventh time, the servant came back and he said, there is a cloud, but it is no bigger than the, man, than a, than the fist of a man. And Elijah knew what was coming, and he said, gather your things and run. And so they ran, and Elijah was given supernatural speed, and he was able to outrun uh, King Ahab's chariots. And King Ahab, furious at the defeat of his false gods, and furious at the defeat of the weather and the humiliation of this prophet, goes to his queen Jezebel and reports everything. And Jezebel hires an assassin, puts a hit out on Elijah and says, go and kill him now. And Elijah hears about it. And this man who went from a contest on top of Mount Carmel, defeat of all the prophets, all of Israel taking commands from him, and then the supernatural speed that he experienced goes and hides under a tree in the desert. And he ran a long way. It was, it was many miles that he ran before he finally collapsed. And the Bible tells us that, that he fell asleep under this tree and that unlike the first time when ravens came and fed him, this time an angel of the Lord came. And the angel of the Lord woke him and said, Elijah, here's food and water. Eat. 
You need your strength. And so Elijah had a meal provided by the angel, and then he fell back asleep. And I imagine that the angel, in this sort of act of compassion, let him rest there. And then after a certain amount of time, the angel again woke him up and said, Elijah, wake up, eat, drink, for the journey you're about to go on is long. Now strengthened and rested, Elijah got up and began a journey that lasted 40 days and 40 nights south into the land of Midian, which is in Saudi Arabia, to a mountain called Horeb. Now he wasn't in a good frame of mind yet, but he had the strength for the journey at least. And 40 days later on that mountain, Elijah waited in a cave where Yahweh appeared to him. Now that mountain's a fascinating thing because Mount Horeb is either a neighboring mountain to Mount Sinai, or it is actually Mount Sinai by a different name. But either way, here the prophet Elijah has gone from the promised land to meet God on a mountain where Moses had many, many years before met God on a mountain and then walked to the promised land. It was like a reverse exodus, but there was a new mission that was going to be given to Elijah. And the Lord appears to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are now looking to take me. And they're looking to kill me as well. So God summoned him to the edge of the cliff. And at the edge of the cliff, outside the mouth of the cave, first a fire raced by. Terrifying. Natural disaster. Supernatural timing. And then there was a, a wind and a cyclone so powerful that it ripped boulders off the mountain and threw them down. And then finally there was an earthquake. But the Lord was neither in the fire as he had been in Sinai. He was not in the earthquake that the Israelites felt around the base of Sinai. He wasn't in the wind that often welcomed his presence. His voice came after in a whisper. And again he said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And in a whisper, God was able to restore this fear-filled, defeated, suicidal prophet. He was able to restore him. And Elijah got his new marching orders. He was told where he would find his next successor. He went back and did amazing things for God. But that story of Elijah in the, in the cave, it reminded me of Revelation 3.20 this week. Revelation 3.20, many people know it, says, Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him and he with me. Now, I have a question for you. Does the God of the universe need to knock? No, of course not. He's God. God can go anywhere he pleases. But for some reason in our lives, in the same way as in Elijah's life, he chooses a gentle tone. He chooses a knock. He's not breaking down the door. He's giving an invitation. He is not, he is gentle. He is a gentle man. He is a gentle God. And I love that about him. Because it shows us how God cares for the person more than, well, he cares for the person. He stoops down, really. What I find amazing is that 
Before Elijah even spoke to him, he cared for Elijah's needs. Isn't that amazing? In Revelation 3 verse 20, God knocks, comes in, and eats. In Elijah's story, he feeds him, and then he comes and visits him. I don't know if you've ever tried to reason with a hungry person. It's very difficult. And I don't know if you've ever tried to motivate a depressed person. But when you have a hungry, depressed, suicidal person, you might as well eliminate 50% of the equation and just feed them before you try to talk. And God meets us in our need. And you see, this kind of caring for physical needs is codified all through Scripture, including the New Testament in James 2, verse 15. It says, If a brother or sister is without clothes or lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? Right before that, James tells us, If anyone says he has faith without works, his faith is useless. It's not that you can work towards salvation. It's not that you can earn salvation. But we can rightly say that if there is no evidence in works after you're saved, we can question your faith. And by no means should you think that a, a person can't be good if they're not a Christian. Of course they can. Actually, non-Christians sometimes put Christians to shame. But what we're saying is if you claim to be a Christian, there had better be evidence in the works of your life. That's what he's saying. And it's, example, it's exemplified in taking care of physical needs. Now, <clears throat> do you know what it's called when you're generous towards strangers? It's called generosity. It's called hospitality. That's the word that the Bible uses, hospitality. Now, I think we often view hospitality incorrectly. In fact, I was not excited to, to preach this message. I had a different message planned, and then this week I was kind of spinning my wheels, so I went and talked to Chris. And he says, well, why don't you do a message on that, that other topic you were thinking about hospitality? And I thought, oh my goodness, hospitality is not cool. How am I going to make this fun? I don't know. And then I started really looking into it, and suddenly I was blown away by how much the Bible teaches on hospitality. But we view hospitality wrong. We think that hospitality is bringing our friends into our home to play games on a Friday night or to have a potluck with our cell. And you know what? That's part of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's beautiful. But hospitality is so much more than that. You know that hospitality can happen wherever you are? Absolutely wherever you are. I once led a mission strip of junior high students to Winnipeg. We were in a church in Winnipeg and I led a, I led a, a cross-cultural mission strip to the North End. These kids were from East St. Paul and North Kildonan. And I tell you something, it was as cross-cultural as taking them to Mexico. It's quite amazing. We stayed at a church called Winnipeg Center Vineyard, which is a beautiful church. I love it. It's an old soap factory, and it's been renovated three floors. Uh, the main floor is sanctuary, then the next floor is children's ministry, and then they have residences above that. These beautiful old windows looking out onto Sutherland and, the, and Sutherland Street in Maine, the corner of Sutherland and Maine. Now, Sutherland is known as Low Track. And the reason it's called Low Track is because it's where all the washed up prostitutes come. It's where you can go to get the cheapest prostitution in Winnipeg. And so you can look out there at night and you can see people working the street. It's right outside the church. And uh, one evening I had kind of got all the youth to, to sleep and I had gotten myself ready and I was looking out of these great big windows on, from their sanctuary looking out onto Sutherland Street and there was this, this woman standing there 
And there was Van that would circle the street, and I don't know who else more sad for, this, this family man who was driving his family vehicle looking for a prostitute or the prostitute. It was just tragic. It's, it's broken. Everywhere you look, it's just broken. And uh, I, was, I went to bed. I could hardly sleep. You know, it's such a shaking reality when you, when you think about it. Well, the next day we went about our service project. We had gotten all these flowers. They were the leftover season's flowers from uh, greenhouses. And it was early July, so everybody was basically done planting. And we took the leftovers and we went door to door on boroughs and in that neighborhood. And we offered to plant people's um, flower beds for them. I don't think we plant, I don't think those flowers survived because many of the flower beds were gravel beds. But for a few days, there was cheerfulness in their yard. It was very fun. And then we went home, and I remember, or back to the church, and I remember we were having um, farmer sausage and pierogies that night for dinner. And here we are lining up, and we're going to eat, and it's in the sanctuary area again. And I looked out the window, and I saw a woman. And I thought, five o'clock. She's already on the street at five o'clock. And then I went, that's the same lady I saw last night. And I just felt this in my spirit. This isn't right. So I took a plate of food and I went out to her. No, actually, I went out to her first. And I said, hi, you know, we're just about to eat supper. Would you like to come in and eat with my youth group? And I was imagining all the conversations that would happen with junior high students as they go home and tell their parents. <laughs> Mom, guess what? I ate with a hooker. Because <sighs> they're not politically correct ever. <sighs> but she said, no, I, I couldn't possibly eat dinner in a church. I said, no problem. I tell you what, I'll bring dinner out to you. So I ran into the church, made a couple plates, brought them out to her. And she, you know, she said to me, I didn't think you'd come back. I said, what do you mean you didn't think I'd come back? I brought food. In fact, I brought my food too. Because I said, it's one thing to eat. It's terrible to eat alone. Do you mind if I join you? So we sat on the curb of Sutherland, on Sutherland there. And uh, as I sat down, I said, am I going to get in trouble for this? And she's like, no, my pimp's across town. Oh, good. A boss is, <laughs> boss is out of town. Good. You know, awful. <laughs> but I was, I was scared. I was nervous. And we sat there and we ate dinner together. And afterwards, we talked for a bit. I learned about her life. She said, you know, I wasn't always a prostitute. She said, I was married, and, but then my husband died. And she said, after he died, I don't know what happened, but something broke in me. And she says, sometimes I look, I look at the men that I'm with and I imagine that they're my husband again. And just this mental illness and brokenness and emotional hurt. And she looked about 60, but she was probably no more than 40. Just very, very used. And uh, her name was Dee. Uh, I don't think that was her real name, but that was her street name. And uh, when she left, she thanked me and she shook my hand. And you know what she said as soon as she shook my hand? She said, oh, don't worry. My hands are always clean. I wash my hands. And I thought, what kind of a life does she live where when you just go to touch somebody in an appropriate way to shake their hand, her first thought is, don't worry, I'm clean. How many people must see her as filthy and dirty? And I never saw her again. But this is the point. And by the way, I mean, I don't have very many stories like that. But the point is, hospitality does not need to bring people into your home. In fact, in some cases, it would be completely inappropriate to bring people like Dee into our homes. It wouldn't be safe. All sorts of reasons. But hospitality can meet people where they're at. 
But this is the first principle of hospitality no matter where you go. Uh, sorry, I'm going to get to that. First, I'm going to just show you a verse. The biblical definition of, pro, of, uh, of hospitality is found in Matthew 25, verse 35 to 36. It says, For I was hungry, and this is Jesus speaking, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And by the way, he's the stranger in this story. People aren't recognizing that they're doing this. He says, I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And this verse defines biblical hospitality. It says, you should feed the hungry. You should satisfy the thirsty. You should give parkas to Latinos when it snows during church renewal weekend. <laughs> you should care for the Latinos when they catch their death of a cold after a church renewal weekend. And then it does speak about billeting as well and visiting prisoners in jail. But this thing of we always think that it's about bringing the person to the home. And of course, the verse does say that. It says, you were a stranger and you took me in. Right? But the home is only one part of the equation. All of these other things, many of the other things, can happen wherever you find yourself. It can be by a ditch, a wadi, under a tree, on the street, in a cave. But the one thing that defines every part of hospitality is that it always, always, always meets a need. Always. So the first principle of hospitality is that to be hospitable, you need to meet the need first. We need to see people through their, the lens of their needs. Second story I'm going to tell takes place outside of Abraham's tent. You know, nearly 1,000 years before Elijah was even born, and 50 miles, but only 50 miles north of the plains of Beersheba where he met that angel, there was a man named Abraham. Now, we know Abraham. Abraham was called from the land of Ur in obedience to an unknown God to travel to an unknown location with nothing but a promise that eventually his offspring would populate the entire area as a nation. Hundreds of years after, that was the promise, so he went. Yet Abraham, this great man of faith, who would later continue his life of obedience to the point of offering his son Isaac on the altar, struggled to believe that he would ever conceive the promised son with his wife Sarah. And as time passed and their bodies aged, they tried to force God's hand by conceiving through Sarah's servant Hagar, but this was a poor plan and it backfired. So Abraham grew to be extremely wealthy, but poor in the promise of his heir. Then one day, three strangers arrived in the settlement of tents, servants and livestock, seeing them from the entrance of his tent where he was sitting in the cool, I'm sure, in the shade there. He jumped up to meet them and greet them as was the custom. He went to them and tried to convince them that they should stay with him, that he could cook a meal for them. But it would be a great honor for him. He said, it will just be a meager meal of, of bread. But I, if you would stay, I'll give you that. And then when they agreed, he was so happy. And he went away and he killed a calf along with the bread. And one commentator says that to kill a calf for these three strangers was treating them as royalty. It was far more food than was needed. It was extravagant. But this was not a demonstration of showmanship. This was a demonstration of generosity. And his generosity was met with an unusual declaration. One of the men, one of the men said something unusual to him. He said, one year from now, I will return and you will have a son. And right there, Abraham recognized who he was speaking to. This was, not, no, this was not an ordinary stranger or wanderer. 
This was the Lord appearing to him in the form of a man. And in the story, it goes from lowercase l, my Lord as a sign of respect, to uppercase l, my Lord, my God. And Sarah, hearing this, laughs from within the tent. She laughs at the thought that she would have a child one year from now. What a kind of a prophecy is this? And so the Lord calls her out and he says, did you laugh? And she says, no, I didn't laugh. And he says, you did laugh. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> you did laugh. Now, Abraham, he didn't laugh because Abraham knew that he was speaking to his Lord. In Hebrews, we have a passage, and I'm convinced that the author of Hebrews was thinking of this story when he wrote it. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Amen. Now, this verse bothers me. It really bothers me, and I'm going to tell you why, because I don't believe it. I, have, I struggle to believe this verse. I will put it out there on public record. And there's, as I reflected on it this weekend, this is what, how I always approach this verse. This is why I doubt it. Who are my guests typically? My friends. I guarantee you, not angels. <laughs> They're not. I know them. They're quite not angels. And, uh, but if I think about it, this verse isn't talking about having our friends over. It's talking about strangers. And by having strangers, being hospitable to strangers, people have entertained angels. And you see, Abraham... He was hospitable to the men before he recognized one of them. He didn't realize who they were when he was being generous and walking them into his home, the safety of his home, and feeding them. He was being generous because it was part of who he was. It was part of his culture. Think about this, though. That culture ran right through into the New Testament. This verse that, we've entered, that people have entertained angels, think about this. In Matthew, where we read the story of Joseph and Mary in the first Christmas, and Joseph and Mary are going down to Bethlehem, and then they come, and they, there's no room for them to stay, and they, they run into an innkeeper who is overworked and understaffed and without rooms. And they say, is there any place that you have for us to stay? And he says, oh my goodness, no, well, yes. There's one last place. Can't turn a pregnant woman away. So he gives them the last covered plot on his residence, which is a stable. And he, through his generosity, gives the first address to baby Jesus. He didn't know that the king, kings was going to be born in a stable that day. But in his culture, he couldn't turn away somebody in need. It was a discipline that they would allow people into their homes. And hospitality principle number two is that hospitality is a spiritual discipline. Now, I literally mean spiritual. It, it, this, this thing of spiritual disciplines, it, it's, two, it, it's a, two meanings. Literally, you could bring spiritual beings into your home if we're to believe the writer of Hebrews. Literally, it's spiritual. 
They, you could enter into a spiritual dimension just by offering strangers access to your home. But it's also a spiritual discipline in the way that a discipline creates a culture and it creates a mindset and an attitude within us. Now, to understand how it is a spiritual discipline, we need to understand the purpose of spiritual disciplines in the first place. So consider fasting. Fasting is one of the spiritual disciplines. Another one would be meditation, Bible reading, memorization, prayer. All of these are spiritual disciplines, okay? Think of it as a spiritual exercise to build spiritual muscles. Now, what are we doing when we fast? Month of prayer and fasting is coming up, and a lot of people dread it. I look forward to it every year. I love, I love the month of prayer and fasting. When we fast, we give something up that we really enjoy. It might be coffee or sugar or sweets or meat. It could be a vegetable-only fast, or it could be all food. It could just be you give up all food for a certain period of time. But why you're doing it is you're training that little whiny child of a soul (laughs) that says, feed me, give me what I want, give me the good stuff, give me the sugar. That part of you needs to be trained that there is nourishment other than the substance you put in your mouth. There's nourishment for your soul that comes not from food, but from feeding on the Lord. And his word. And so what we're doing is we're training ourselves to be less self-centered and less soulish. That's what fasting is intended to do. But you know what's interesting about fasting is that there's a whole chapter written about it in Isaiah. And Isaiah 58 changes the emphasis from food to something else. This is what it says. Lord, this is the Lord speaking to the prophet. He says, cry out loudly and don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways like a nation that does what is right and and does not abandon the justice of their God. By the way, he says, like a nation that does what is right. There's an appearance there. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Who doesn't, right? They say, this is the, the nation speaking now, why have we fasted but you have not seen? We've denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. Look, the Lord says, you do as you please on the day of your fast. You oppress your workers. You fast with contention and strife. You you strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this, a day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed and put out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And then the Lord gives the real meaning. He says, isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness and untie the ropes of the yoke and set the oppressed free and tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your home and to clothe the naked when you see them and not ignore your own flesh and blood? By the way, hospitality starts with your family. That's your own flesh and blood. You do not ignore your own flesh and blood. Then... Your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time, when you call to the Lord, he will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. Isn't that amazing? And you think about it. You go, Lord, I fasted last year. Nothing seemed to happen. And the Lord said, faith without works is dead. Now, should we fast? Yes. Should we start, you know, in the, in the basics? Absolutely. Maybe a meal here and there? Absolutely. Because it's a discipline. It's an exercise that we add to as we, as we mature. But I think that the essence of fasting is to get 
in the same way that the essence of fasting is to get our mind off of food and onto God, you know that hospitality can accomplish the same thing? It defeats your self-centeredness and your selfishness. That's exactly what fasting does. And this isn't about hosting your friends. In Luke 14, it says, He also said to the one who had invited him, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back, and then you'll be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and then you'll be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So in other words, hospitality is intended to be entirely others-focused. That's what a spiritual discipline does to us. It takes the attention off us and it puts it on others. And that means it's not about you as the host. If you want to truly understand spiritual, biblical hospitality, you have to understand this. It means that when somebody comes to your door and is weeping because they just need a half hour of your time because they're in a really tough spot, they say, can I please just come in and will you pray with me? If your first thought is about the dishes in the sink and the laundry on the couch, you are not being hospitable because you're making it about you and not the guest. Do you see? This is exactly what we see in Luke 10 when Jesus chides Martha. Martha's in the kitchen. Jesus has come to visit them. Mary is sitting at his feet while her sister's cleaning the dishes, doing the laundry, making the food. And she comes out and she doesn't even talk to her sister. She goes straight to the Lord, just like a sister would. And she says, Lord, do you not see that I'm working in the kitchen and here are my sisters just sitting at your feet? Tell her to come and help me. And he says, Martha, Martha, your sister's chosen the better chore. She's chosen the better task. It's about the guest, not about the host. That's why it's a spiritual discipline. Now, I sometimes feel guilty. And in fact, I, in fact, I even had an email this morning from somebody who felt guilty last night as they heard this. You know, I, it just drives me crazy. It doesn't, the people don't drive me crazy. It drives me crazy that we have this false sense of guilt all the time. We don't need false guilt. We just need God to tell us what the next step is. That's all. That's all. This, this last uh, September, I was reading a book by Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, I'm going to put the, the, the title up in a few minutes so that you can see it. But... It was very convicting. And, and she does hospitality in a way that's very different than, than I can. They have people in their home literally every night for supper. Literally every night. And it's homemade meals. And people bring, it's always potlucks. And then they sing psalms together. And then they pray. And they win people to Jesus. And it's like, oh my goodness, I can never be you, Rosaria. And I felt guilty. And then the Lord said, what are you feeling guilty about, Tom? You bring children in, foster children into your home. You're hospitable. That takes all your energy. That's why you don't hang out with friends. <laughs> I went, oh, yeah, thank you, Lord. You see, if you actually pause and think about it, you're actually doing some of this. You actually are. And God is only inviting you to do the next step. Now, I'm going to pause and do an infomercial for just a second because I have a very practical way for you to actually practice this. And before I say anything, I'm going to caveat this. I was talking this weekend with somebody who was at the um, Empower Retreat. And they were asking me about our life as foster parents and, and CFS and that kind of thing. And I, and I said, look, not everybody should be a foster parent, but, every, but there should be more foster parents. Not every family should be a foster family, but there should be more because there's more kids who need homes right now. 
So, and I believe that God cares about kids and I believe that he provides a way. And you know what? It's one way that he's providing right now is through a ministry, not a government agency, a ministry, a Christian ministry called Safe Families Canada. And Safe Families started in the U.S. They've placed tens of thousands of children voluntarily into volunteer host homes, all run by churches, all people like you who say, I'll be a foster parent without the attachment to the, to the government. I just want to be a host. And they've done this in the States for many years. It came to Canada a number of years ago. It's been highly successful there. And then it's now, we're, it's come to Winnipeg last year. And now we're trying to establish it in Steinbach. And the way it works is this. If there's a family at risk of losing their child to CFS, or they're in crisis, or the mom needs to go into rehab, but what does she do with her other children? So they can call, say, families. It's a voluntary placement. And they can say, do you have a host home? And that host home will take those children and they can, they stay anywhere the, typically from three days to three months and the average stay is three weeks. And that volunteer host home, a Christian home, brings those children in and they love on them until they can go back to their mom or their dad or their grandparents. Isn't that amazing? But what is astonishing, oh, I just love it. You would not believe the testimonies that are coming out of this ministry. You would not believe it. In Toronto, what happens is they often get immigrants coming. So the immigrants come, and you, let's say there's a woman from Africa. She's pregnant and has two other little kids. She comes, she has no connections, no family. Her husband has stayed behind. He couldn't get here quite as fast. Well, when it comes time to give birth to that little baby, who takes care of her others, the other littles? They, by law, have to go into child and family services at that point. They have to go into child welfare. But now what hospitals are doing is they're calling safe families saying, we have this woman, do you have a host home? And it's just a few days. And then, but then what happens is afterwards, that, that host home doesn't say goodbye usually forever. They wrap around this woman who's an immigrant who has no other family here, and they become family for her. And it's happened over and over and over and over again. It's very simple. It's very practical. And by the way, Child and Family Services loves it. The government loves it. And this is why. They want to keep kids out of the system, desperately. They have files open on families that they're worried about, but they can't get to to help because their caseload of kids in the system is this big and they can't do the preventative work. So when Safe, family comes, safe Families comes along, they actually provide a buffer. You know, there's someone in crisis or who could be in crisis if we don't help this person right now. Say families can help them and they actually stay out of care. And the government loves it. So, we're having an information night on November 26th. It is not a timeshare sale. <laughs> you don't have to sign up for anything. You can come and listen. And by the way, if you know you will never be able to have kids in your home for any various reason, that's okay. Because there's other things that we need. There's something called um, family friends. Family friends are the people who watch the host families and wrap around them with meals and support because it's hard having kids that are strangers in your home. It's very hard. So the, the family friends, they don't have the kids. They just support the family. And then there's people they need to drive kids around because everything is volunteer-based. And by the way, this isn't a self-fund initiative. I just want us to be involved. It's going to be a multi-church thing for our region. Many, many kids could be helped by doing this. But again, you can come, you can listen, you can do nothing. That's fine. But if you have this little tug in your heart that I need to do something practical, this is a very practical thing to do. And I promise you, 
it will help get the attention off of you and onto someone else. <laughs> children have a tendency to do that, right? At-risk children have a greater tendency. Number three, part two of the Abraham story doesn't end with Abraham because those three visitors, those three visitors weren't actually staying. Uh, they weren't coming to see Abraham. They were stopping at Abraham's tent on the way to a different location. And that location was Sodom. Because the Bible tells us that the outcry, the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah had reached heaven. And so the Lord sent out a reconnaissance team to see if it was quite as bad as he thought and whether they should smote the place off the map. And so as they're leaving, the Lord talks to his angel companions and he says, should I keep from Abraham what I'm actually doing here? I mean, I am building a nation out of him after all. He is my chosen one. I'm going to talk to him. So he goes to Abraham and he says, this is our plan. This is why we're really here. And Abraham goes, oh no. His nephew Lot lives in Sodom. And so he enters into a sales pitch, a negotiation unlike any ever heard with God. And he's presumptuous and he goes and he starts high, which is what he should do when you're bidding like this. And he says, God, look, my nephew Lot lives there. My family is there. If, you found, if we found, could locate 50 righteous people in that sordid place, would you, would you preserve it? The Lord goes, yeah, you know what? 50 people, I'd do that. Okay, great. But what about 40? Okay, yeah, 40, I'll do it for 40. What about 20, God? Can I have 20? <laughs> 10, do I hear 10? And the Lord says, okay, for 10 people, I won't destroy it. And, uh, and Abraham thinks, oh, good. Maybe Lot can find 10 other people. The angels walk their way to Sodom and come in. And you know what I find so beautiful about this whole thing is that Lot was, was doing what was culturally appropriate. He was the one who was sitting right there at the, he was at the city gate, in the shade of the city gate when the angels arrived, just like his uncle Abe was at the, at, the, at the tent entrance when the angels arrived. Same way that Abraham jumped up to greet them, Lot jumped up to greet them. Strangers wandering in the desert was an unusual thing. You see, people in the, in the, in the Middle East, in that, in that ancient time, they would literally be born, they would be born and die within a mile of their home. You never went from one town or one settlement to the next unless you were in a huge caravan for protection or you had a dire need. Three men walking through the desert means that there must have been something so important, so important going on that it was, that it was worth taking their life in their hands and wandering out among the thieves and marauders. Tribal wars were going on. So in other words, when people offered hospitality in the ancient Near East, what they were doing is they were offering protection. It wasn't about getting a free meal and a free room. It was about protecting them. And you see, Lot, Lot knew what they needed to be protected from. And, and, he, and he tried to talk to them. And he said, don't, don't stay in the town square. They wanted to stay in the town square. He says, you don't know what happens here after night. Just come into my home. He finally convinces these angels, who he thinks are men, to come into his home. And as he does, a mob forms. And this mob of men from Sodom come and they start beating on his door. And he comes to the door and he says, what do you want? They say, send the men out so that we can do unbelievably horrible things. And Lot says, no, these are my guests. You will not attack them in this way. Please do not do this. And then they said, well, if you're not going to give us them, then we're going to do 
to you what we were going to do to them. And right there, the angels rip off their outer clothes and show their Superman symbols and their angel, their wings unfurl. I can just imagine. And they become, they do business. And they blind everyone there. And then they come in and the people who were seeking refuge become the rescuers to Lot and his family. And they say, Lot, gather your family, gather any, anybody you know, and flee. Because in a few hours, Sodom will be destroyed. Lot gathers his two daughters and his wife. Their fiancés refused to come. They thought Lot was joking. Who believes that angels are here? No one does. They took off in the middle of the night running. Unfortunately, Lot's wife had a call in her heart towards the evil of that city. She turned back and looked and died and became a pillar of salt. And Lot and his daughter survived, but only barely. Now, what's the point? The third principle of hospitality, and I'm going to need to go very quickly through this one, is that hospitality makes your home into a place of refuge. See, it actually becomes a violent defense against evil when you bring people into your home. And I mean a violent defense. You know, we often think of, you know, a, a, you know, a refuge is just a, a safe place that you go with thick walls. No, there's a, there's a, a defense that is a, def a passive defense. I believe that the Lord is a refuge and he's got really big cannons on the turret. And it's a violent defense against evil. And this thing of refuge is very important to the Lord. In Numbers 35, God instructs Joshua, one of the first things you're going to do when you've established your, uh, your, the conquest in the promised land is you're going to set up cities of refuge. Why? Because somebody might do something bad by accident. He might kill somebody by accident, but the victim's family might want to take revenge. So that person needs a place of refuge. And who was in charge of those cities of refuge where people could run? The priests and Levites. Those were their cities. He cared so much about this thing of refuge. In fact, Yahweh himself is called a refuge. If you look in the ESV, there's 34 different Psalms that call God a refuge. I took refuge in my Lord. I was afraid and I took refuge. The Lord is my refuge. So he becomes a violent defense against evil. And you know what? We have a modern day, somewhat modern day historical context for this. What about the, the people who rescued the Jews from the Nazis? That was a violent defense against a world evil. Just last week in the news, there was a story of a 92-year-old Greek woman who had just been reunited with the family that she saved during the war. Can you imagine? She's among 27,000 non-Jews who are in a database called the Righteous Among the Nations. They're called the Righteous Among the Nations, and they have 27,000 names of non-Jews who help Jews. They celebrate that. She and her sisters were a place of safety to refugees, to strangers. And you know what? You might think to yourself, well, we live in Canada. Like, we don't have that kind of oppression where people are running away and, and need a place in a, in a getting away from a violent context. And to that, I say, really? You're right. The bombs aren't blowing up here. But there are certainly people fleeing from places where there are bombs going off. And they are certainly looking for a place of refuge. And we have to be very careful because that's a very political thing to say. 
But I think as Christians, we need to seriously consider what it means to be a nation of refuge. What does that look like? Because right now in the world, there are people who cannot stay where they would like to stay and they're strangers and they're in need of a home. The other thing is that perhaps you just don't see the people who are fleeing from a personal war, such as an abusive marriage or they've escaped from a gang in Winnipeg. And by necessity, you don't know who they are because they're coming here to hide. I promise you they're here. There are people here who are hiding and they are refugees and you just don't know it. And then there are spiritual refugees. Because not only is the war a physical war sometimes, as in the case of of Jews and and modern-day refugees, but there's a, a spiritual refugee as well. And when we bring spiritual refugees into our home, we are also doing a violent act of defense. We're saying, I will help you to get away from the powers of spiritual evil. And you know, there's a beautiful story about this. Um, by Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield was a liberal academic lesbian. And she uh, was vociferous. She was violent against Christians with her words. And she was brilliant with her words. She still is. And she wrote a letter to an editor about promise keepers because she was so furious with it. And she received far more attention than she was expecting. And one of the people that responded to her, though, was a pastor. And this pastor was gentle, and yet he held on to his convictions in his letter. And he ended the letter by saying, would you like to come and have dinner with my wife and myself? And she accepted. She said, this is perfect. She had been wondering, she had been actually thinking about doing a paper on why conservative Christians use the, she says, seemingly good people use the Bible to justify their strange and archaic ways. So she saw this, she said, he's like my unpaid assistant, uh, research assistant. That's how she thought about it. But then she tells a story. She was sitting in their driveway the first time she went to their house. And she said to herself, what am I doing? I'm about to eat with the enemy. And she went in and she's got this beautiful testimony on YouTube. And she says, when I left, it was the most refreshing thing. They hadn't given me the gospel and they didn't invite me to church. And you know that she went back the next week and the next week and the next week and the next week and the next week. It took two years of Friday night dinners with this pastor and his wife to slowly change her heart. Two years before she ever went into a church. How many of you have that kind of perseverance? I don't. Two years. I want my friends to be saved now. Right? (laughs) And as soon as they're saved, we're going to go find the next person to save. No, no, no. It was genuine friendship that won her to the Lord. She wrote a book. I'm going to put the title up. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. You know, we're coming up on cold, long, dark months. (laughs) It's a good time to do something practical in this area of hospitality. It's a good time. For a bunch of reasons. Uh, Number one, I think God is calling us to another level of hospitality, whatever that looks like. It's going to look different for every single household. Some of you actually just need to have your kids into your home because your kids have been become estranged from you. Some of you need to host your grandchildren so that your kids can get away for a little bit. Some of you need to invite your neighbor over. Some of you need to invite the person across the aisle in this church family over. 
Some of you need to go into the lobby and look for the person who's standing alone and say, would you like to come and eat with my family today? Some of you need to invite an immigrant family over for Christmas. And you say, not Christmas, our sacred traditions. <laughs> There's something far more sacred than your traditions, and that is the salvation of souls. So how will you practice hospitality? I would, if you need a good, a good gut-wrenching motivator, read this book. Very few people can do what she does. And I'm just, that's just true. Very few people will be able to live the way that she lives. But she is a product of radical, practical hospitality that saved her. And how many souls are waiting to be saved if they'll just be invited? You know, some people won't ever come to a church, but they'll come to your dinner table. Who will that person be? This is the perfect time of year to practice. If nothing else, this is what I would suggest. As you do your devotions in the next few months, just in your Bible, write an H, write hospitality every time you see an example in Scripture. You know, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, hospitality. Jesus has women who are from questionable backgrounds into his home. That's hospitality. Jesus eats with his 12 disciples a last meal before he goes to his crucifixion. That's generosity. It's on every page of scripture that God is meeting a need, a physical need, dealing with that, inviting people in, being gentle with them. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you not only write about hospitality, but you are hospitable. You stoop down to our level. You are unlike every other God. The God of Islam never, ever entered into world, into the creation. He's distant. But you're not a deistic, distant God. You walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Jesus, you have always been caring for your creation, even when your creation has turned their back on you. And God, I just pray that we would get a little glimpse of your heart in this song that we're about to sing and worship you with. I pray, God, that it would be prayerful and that you would speak to us in it and that you would not overwhelm us, but that you would simply give us the next right thing to do. And I ask these things in your name and by your spirit. Amen.